This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Join Ganjana Tetboriruk, Krista Albers, and I as we interview historian of Thailand, Dr. Shane Stratty, professor at Kent State University. Join us on October 28th and 29th for the Council on Thai Studies Annual Meeting, or COTS, as it returns home to Northern Illinois University. For more information and to register, please visit our website at www.niu.edu forward slash C-O-T-S. See you there. The 12th International Burma Studies Conference is coming to NIU October 6th through the 9th. The Home Student Center will be hosting scholars from around the world specializing on Burmese studies for this three-day event. The theme this year is Traditions and Challenges. Registration is currently open with special pricing for students. For more information, please visit burmaconference2016.com. All right, welcome to our latest edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm Eric Jones. I'm Krista Albers. Ganjana. And we are here in studio with Shane Stratty. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Shane is a um, uh, is visiting our campus, gave some talks, and he agreed to sit down with us and talk about his new book, which for the always always good in a in an audio podcast to to do visual gags. Book, yeah. yeah. So you're looking at a very beautiful cover of the Lost Territories: Thailand's History of National Humiliation. So. Welcome, and thanks for coming over. Thank you for having me. You want to start us off? You, you, are, I'm excited about your book. Thank I just you. want to say, yeah. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, we can geek out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, this is what, we're in your office. We can definitely do that. No, I'm very excited about your book. Um, I think the the narrative that you're putting forth and and presenting is is something that is underrepresented in Thai history, but yet so important. And, and speaking as a, a Thai person growing up with this narrative, defining my, you know, ethnic identity inside and outside of Thailand, I am so excited for this book that I will soon read. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Those no are very, pressure. That's very high praise. That, that's what interested me in, in the topic was that uh, when I did original research on the Franco-Thai conflict of the 1940s, there was so much anti-colonial, anti-Western uh, imagery and discourse that operated, which was um, disconcerting to me because I was only familiar with the royal nationalist idea that Thailand is perpetually independent, the king saved the country, we have uh, drawn this careful balance between Thai and Western uh, ideas, and and yet uh, uh, I couldn't figure out where all this anger and hostility and, and resentment was coming from, and so that made me want to, of course, learn more. Did you ever visit that fort where the Thai, in Samut Prakan, where the Thai army, you know, heroically defended the Gulf of Thailand? Uh, Heroically meaning that they (laughs) allowed the French to come in and... uh... (laughs) The sign, though. I don't know if you were able to go on to the site. No, I was not. Okay. um, When I visited it, I went with with my um, aunt who was a former government employee mm-hmm. and she was able to get us onto the 
the uh, location with her government ID. Mm, So we were able to visit the actual Mm, site um, with the cannons and all these things and and Mm -hmm. the placards and everything. So um, a lot of interesting narrative about that particular event at the fort. So what from from there to the book, how do we get there? Well, I think Tung Chai writes uh, uh, very well about that event in the book and says that it was so ch- uh, such a traumatic rupture of the uh, royal historiography of Thailand. It was so damaging to um, Julalongorn that a new history had to be created to account for it, right? And that history was that this was not a devastating defeat. It was not the loss of of a third of the territory. It was another example of royal wisdom, which was the king sacrificed a finger to save the hand. He had the foresight to recognize that it was pointless to try to resist the way that the Burmese had, the way that the Vietnamese had, that if he had tried to uh, resist forcefully, his uh, Thailand's fate, Siam's fate, would have been the same. And therefore, he knowingly... uh, sacrificed a portion of the kingdom so that he could he could retain the center and that flips the narrative on its head and says no this is a wonderful triumphant example of how the king has preserved strategic retreats to yeah exactly and um what i'm trying to say is that's that although that has been the dominant narrative and that has been embraced by thai nationalists and that's the face that always appears when ties engage with the international community and that's how they distinguish themselves from the rest of the region that there is this alternate what i call a a darker side of uh, nationalist discourse that operates in ways that you're very familiar with and and most ties are familiar with but most westerners don't understand and, and don't really perceive and and because they only understand royal nationalist triumphalist discourse it makes it harder for us to understand why Thai foreign policy operates the way that it does, why they're so aggressive in some cases and, and why they're still so upset about things that have happened in the past. It seems difficult to for, for an outsider to understand the Southeast Asian nation, which did not get colonized. Mm-hmm. And we it's can debate in about, our anthem. We can, mm-hmm. can we all sing that for us? <laughs> <laughs> I just shook my head for those <laughs> podcast <laughs> listeners. We'll get her to later. That's such part of its story. And then on the flip side, it's maybe the most on the surface of of any Southeast Asian nations about a narrative of loss. And mm-hmm. so how does that make sense? And how does how are we to understand that? Well, I, I think it's really difficult to make sense of that. Uh, uh, and it plays out on, on so many different historical levels. The best example is the arrival of the Japanese during World War II. What is the relationship between the Thai government and the Japanese? In a, royal, in a royalist, nationalist, historiographical narrative, Japanese are a guest army. You know, that's, it's never occupied. There's a, right. there's a partnership. We just gave them some access. That exa- that's right. <laughs> they were just passing through there's on their way to Burma. romantic and, uh, TV and Singapore. series about it. Exactly. Right. And, and so that's necessary to preserve the narrative of Thailand never having been colonized, perpetual independence, uh, there's a there's an alliance there's a partnership that exists uh, between the two armies. On the other hand, that makes the Thai look like collaborators. So whenever they're accused of collaboration by the West, they immediately flip the narrative and turn to the Seri Thai, the the Free Thai movement that was allied with the United States and um, 
uh, worked to promote democracy and anti-Japanese resistance. And they say, no, 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 we, we you know, the Japanese were an occupying force uh, effectively, or, or Pibun uh, was an illegitimate ruler and, and the Thai nation was working to oppose him. So in, in so many cases, the um, Thai get to have it both ways when it comes to being consistently independent and uncolonized, but always being uh, oppressed and humiliated and taken advantage of by the West. Those things are happening simultaneously throughout Thai history. And, and you see that play out during the post-World War II reparation discourse where this issue of whether or not Thailand was a collaborator with Japan comes to, to, to a front and, and the struggle of power between the United States and um, the United Kingdom play out over Thailand, right? Do we make them pay reparation? Did they lose the war? Did they win the war? Mm -hmm. And... And it's very, that's our era. So I'm, I'm that yeah. Is our era. Yes, it's fascinating era. And, and, and like you say, that's, that's why the, the memory of World War II is so problematic for Thais, right? It's so contested because there are essentially t these two factions that are sort of uh, battling for control over what was Thailand during the war and, and who was really in charge. If you're the British and you move into Thailand from India, it's in your best interest to say, no, Pibun was a legitimate governor and, and his actions were pro-Axis and therefore we want to impose reparations and we want to take rice and other commodities from Thailand to feed our empire. If you're the Americans and you're trying to establish your position in Southeast Asia, you want a willing Thai partnership. And the best way to achieve that is by saying, no, the Seri Thai, they were the legitimate government of Thailand they supported us, and therefore, we're going to limit the British in terms of the amount of reparations that they can impose on the Thais. And, and by doing that, of course, they uh, receive the gratitude of the Thai government, which lasts for the next you know, th 30 years. The Council on Thai Studies annual meeting, or COTS, returns home to Northern Illinois University on Friday, October 28th and Saturday, October 29th. Friday night's reception features the world premiere performance of Thai Northeastern Bong Lang music for Steel Pan in a joint performance by the NIU Steel Band and the Thai Cultural Fine Arts Institute of Chicago. For more information and to register, please visit our website at www.niu.edu forward slash C-O-T-S. See you there. It seems like a lot of, in your book and in other work, there's a lot of things that we can understand about what's happening today in Thailand. Can you give us some examples of things that might be happening that have a kind of this historical memory that you look at? Mm -hmm. Well, the most obvious one is the ongoing conflict over in Thai, they would call it Kalprawihan, but its uh, international name is Previhir. It's the set of uh, 11th century Hindu temple ruins that exist on the border between Thailand and Cambodia. For the listener, very beautiful. Very beautiful, very picturesque, scenic uh, area. And um, that, ha that, that area ha has a contested history that really goes back to the early part of the 20th century when the French 
drew the boundary between Thailand and Cambodia. And they, the treaty that they signed stated that the French would establish the watershed between along the Dungrek Mountains as the boundary between the two, the two regions, French Indochina on one hand and Thailand on the other. Well, that would have put Preve here in Thailand. But when the cartographers, the French cartographers, arrived at the ruins, they deviated from the watershed and they drew a line that went around Preve here. As they do. And as imperialists do. And then back sure was an honest mistake. towards the watershed, which meant that the temple complex was, was hereafter in French Indochina. Are there French records that, that talk about the decision to jog around the temple or that we, that we know of? Or there, is it- there may be records in the Archives d'Outre-mer that, that talk about this decision. I've never run across any, and I'm not aware of anyone who has. But what you have essentially is a text of a treaty that says one thing says effectively mm-hmm. Preve here should be in Thailand. And then you have a map, an Annex A map, very famous map that was kept in the French archives that says, you know, the line goes around Preve here, putting it in French Indochina. And so when uh, this is contested later after the war in the 1950s, the Cambodian side has access to this map that the Thai do not have access to, and they use that to effectively win the case and argue that, that uh, Preavihir, in fact, is part of Cambodia, even though the text of the treaty says that it should be in Thailand. So it's the, the geo-body over print capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> the power of the image, right? <laughs> the power of, of image over text, in a lot of ways, wins the day in that particular court case. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned today in my presentation, the reaction to that court case is is devastating uh, to the Thais. It's it's humiliating. They're embarrassed in front of the international community. They lose this case to a country which they consider to be a, a lesser nation, a younger brother of the Thai, and they lose it um, very very publicly in front of the world. And so they don't. They, they realize they have to acknowledge the decision of the world court, but they do so in a way that's designed to prevent the dispute from healing, to keep the wound open. And so they, instead of taking the flag down, they cut off the flagpole and they move it off of the temple complex into what's now Sisagate province. And they establish a plaque that says, you know, on this day, Prayavihir was stolen from us. And, and so that, that moment, even, even though the Thais comply with international will, and they make a big statement about how, you know, we're, we're a, a law-abiding nation and we're a peaceful nation and we respect the international order. They manage that incident in a way that is very intentionally uh, designed to keep the wound open, right? To make sure that it will be an issue for future generations and that those future generations will not forget what happened and that they will always think of Preavi here as a monument that is Thai and not Cambodian. And what was so interesting during that time, too, is that that area in Thailand is overwhelmingly Khmer <laughs> in ethnicity, right? And and the and the wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> right, and and how that plays out mm-hmm. in in the media mm-hmm. of of Thais versus uh, Khmer people, yes. right? It's not about the nations; it's about the people and their spiritual heart and the the physical locus of their spirituality, which is in this um, Hindu monument. And 
and the way that it was being treated in the local media mm -hmm. surrounding the area, you got both sides, mm -hmm. right? Because there were Khmer language radio stations and, and songs about things that were happening, um, free ad lib music that was happening in both languages that really shows the complexity that we don't get in the in maybe international mm -hmm. news coverage of the event. And nobody has really talked about that in terms of scholarly studies anyways, of how that affected the ethnic Khmer in the area and where their loyalty lies because they're straddling these two nations, right? Yes. And that's such a great point that I hadn't thought of before. But the point in a lot of ways of these national humiliation incidents is for the state to be able to uncover insults and then rectify them and to have these incidents act as a litmus test for loyalty and identity. You know, your level, your degree of tininess is based in many ways on how you react to the insult that's been levied against the nation. So for these people who are living along the border inside of the Taijiu body, but who are ethnically Khmer, their, real, their only real interest uh, or self-interest is based on sort of keeping a, a sort of peaceful uh, status quo so that they can continue to profit off of people who want to come see the temple. That's what they really care about. But they are put under an enormous amount of pressure due to the national humiliation discourse to appear to be agitated or to appear to want to prolong the conflict so that territory <laughs> isn't stolen from Thailand because otherwise they look suspect in the eyes of the rest of the nation. Are you really Thai? We know that you're ethnically Khmer. You don't seem to care about losing prey over here. How Thai can you really be? Are you condemning your family on across the border? Sure. Right. Who, where, do you, where do your allegiances lie? Exactly. That leads into what I was going to ask you. Why do this? How does this serve the state in Thailand to to do this? And, and uh, so a litmus test for... For Tinus, are there other examples of that, or other ways that it it that you think it, it serves the state to to go back to these narratives? Well, I think the uh, purpose of national humiliation discourse is that it allows the state to define aspects of Thai identity very narrowly in ways that give it control over aspects of heritage and culture and Thai values. So, in this case if we're talking about an ethnicity, uh, the Thai state gets to use these examples of who is really Thai and who is not, right? The Thai state gets to determine where the boundaries of, of the uh, country lie, right? Or where, where, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter where the boundaries are on the map. What's really Thailand and what's not, right? What's the spirit of these, of these boundaries? Um, and, and in doing that, it takes on a role as the uh, defender of the nation, right? It takes on a role as an avenger of insults that have been levied against the nation state. And this is very useful for a military regime that doesn't have another source of political legitimacy. It doesn't have the cultural capital of the monarchy. It doesn't have the charisma, uh, for example, of King Bumibon. It doesn't have uh, the history and legacy of these other institutions that have, have ruled Thailand. So what is its purpose? What, what is it that it, it uh, uh, can use to justify its position as ruler of Thailand? And this becomes the way that they do it. They, they seek out these type of insults 
they narrow, they use them to very narrowly define and control Thai identity, and then they position themselves as protector of an identity that is so vulnerable and constantly under assault, and that therefore needs a very strong military state in order to protect and defend it. Wow, that makes sense. <laughs> that's a, that it makes a lot of sense. I think for uh, again uh, an outsider to Thai studies who might who might be trying to understand the the raison d'etre for some of these these behaviors or discourses when you see you know school maps of of uh of vanishing thailand um i mean i i remember seeing similar and thinking like well the the a lot of states ignore their their shames and their humiliation and and it's and it's everything is triumphant and and here they're they're doing the opposite they're 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 highlighting it but it it's it does serve a purpose it does and it's a reversal in many ways if you were to create a, a cartographical chronology of the history of the United States, it would be a story of constant expansion, right? Westward expansion right. to Hawaii, to the Philippines, and, and so on. It's a, it's, a, it's a triumphant story of you know, empire building in a lot of ways. When you look at a lost territories chronology of Thai history, it's quite the opposite. It's a history of the borders of the, of the geobody shrinking, it's it's a it's an uh, imagined history of Thailand being invaded, constantly invaded by Western imperialists. And if if that's the image in your mind, if you go to a school, for example, like the uh, school that I I, I showed uh, today, which has panels demonstrating each instance of lost territory on on its walls, that's how you see your history. You imagine your country as being very vulnerable, right? You imagine your country as constantly being under assault from these Western predators whose uh, sole design has been to humiliate and to steal from uh, your country. So what about obnoxious historians who bring up, you know, the the Khmer Empire, Angkor, which used to be pretty big, or the, the Burmese who um, many, you know, sacked the UTA, many uh, that that had territory, which so so does is that is that left out of that story in, in the in the or, or that's that becomes part of the Thailand under siege. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's not just Western attacks. It's it, no, it's not just Western attacks. And I think that if you write a history of loss in Thailand, you would envision three major incidents. the The first one would be the the collapse of Ayutthaya under the Burmese. The second one would be uh, the Baknam incident, the, the Franco-Siamese crisis. And then the third incident... Kanjan is crying for the listener. <laughs> He's yeah. just salting my national Very, Very upsetting, I understand. The third incident would be the, uh, the Asian financial crisis of 1998, right? Thailand suffered uh, financially as much as any country in that region. And in that uh, scenario... It's the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank that impose conditions on Thailand, which they saw as designed to humiliate them and to punish them unfairly. And that was, in many ways, you know, the third great example of loss or the third uh, invasion from outside sources. So all these things, all these uh, e events or incidents sort of fall under the purview of this larger 
overarching narrative, which as I discussed today, uh, acts as a lens that's designed to distort the reality of, of these types of contemporary issues. What I want to add though is, <laughs> Shane's already laughing. Um, just, just smiling. <laughs> just smiling. <laughs> what, what I do want to add is, is in addition to it being a narrative of lost, the way that it's framed for the Thai people is not necessarily about loss. It's about, it's a narrative of preservation of what we've been able to preserve, right? And those maps um, of the on the school that you showed during your talk, to me, when I saw it, and, and the way that I grew up and the way that the, the history has been presented is that look at what we've been able to preserve, right? It's And the focus may be not so much to trigger a sense of loss, but a sense of pride in the the ability to preserve right and in a way it adds to you mean to like like the the cleverness of the of the and the, and the agility and the whoever was responsible the, yeah. for yeah. the preservation of mm-hmm. what's left and and in a way because it closes in on the the bangkok center mm-hmm. and to perpetuate the centerness of bangkok it now mm-hmm. is the core what we have left now is the core it's as though we're fruit the peels are gone, the meat is gone, but the seed is there and the seed will perpetuate. <laughs> nice. Right? And this and this is the narrative I want to bring up is sure. that is that yes, it's humiliating. Yes, it does add on to the the national agenda, but at the same time, that's not the only feeling that's being triggered by this type of of um information agenda, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. That is a, a more royalist, nationalist perspective uh, in the sense that Thailand has been through the refiner's fire, right? And all the impurities of these peripheral areas have sort of been burned off. And You're wearing a maroon shirt, Sanjin, not a yellow one. I, I, don't don't wear, <laughs> I don't wear... Um, I don't wear a lot of colors okay. these days. Understandable. Uh, but but that what's left is the, is the refined center right the the gold without impurities and um it's sort of interesting because when i when i went to the national one one of the national museums uh in in uh i want to say nuntapuri but that has uh a uh a map of the lost territories up on the wall and it's part of the display of the franco thai conflict the border conflict and it only includes the territory taken by the French, in, in part because it's a Franco-Thai conflict border map. But, but that's what they identify as the map of the lost territories. And so I asked one of the curators there, well, why, why have you not included the Shan territories, which were taken by the British, or the Malay territories that were taken by the British? There's no British uh, uh, territory here. And she said, well, it's because those regions were populated with people that aren't ethnic Thai. You know, they're, they're not Thai anyway, so they never really should have been part of Thailand, which I thought was really, really fascinating because, of course, historically, the Thai have considered the Shan to be much more ethnically similar to themselves than, uh, you know, even the Khmer, I would argue, in a lot of ways. That, that argument makes sense for the Malays, but it doesn't make sense for, for the uh, Shan territories. 
I, I don't think that's the right reason. I think the reason is that the way that those territories were ceded to Britain was was on equal terms. You know, the Thai got something that they wanted, the French got something, or sorry, the, the uh, British got what they wanted, and the Thai felt like they'd been treated like equals. When they interacted with the French, on the other hand, it was on much more unequal terms. The, the terms of those agreements were much more humiliating, and that's why that particular loss of territory has been preserved the way that it has, uh, as opposed to the loss of British territory. So tell us how the Thai are using these examples to reach outside of their borders and project themselves as curators of Thainess and of and of Buddhism. Well, um, we talked today about um, efforts that the Thai state makes to look or to search for insults to to the nation state. And then it signs itself the role of uncovering and rectifying those insults. And it, just as it does it with, with its borders, it does it with Buddhism as well. Um, some of you might be familiar with uh, an organization called the Knowing Buddha Organization, which is an organization in Bangkok that works with the support of the Thai government, whose sole purpose is to search out uh, businesses or advertising agencies or film companies who incorrectly display the Buddha, which means that they could be using the image of the Buddha on something like a swimsuit or a shoe, or uh, they, they could have a, there was a case of a Disney um, uh, program that, that had a dog that was a character in the show and they named the dog Buddha. No, <laughs> and uh, there are all sorts of other examples, but generally it's just restaurants that have a Buddha, but they don't display it correctly. They have it too low, or they have it next to things that are inappropriately uh, that are that are inappropriate uh, to be placed next to a Buddha. And then they they say to the that entity, "You need to fix this. You need to change this. You can't display the Buddha that way." Um, there was a very famous example of a, a movie in 2004, I want to say, uh, called The Ho uh, Hollywood Buddha, which was written and directed by a French director who is, a, is sort of a failed artist. Typical. <laughs> he's, a, he's a failed director and artist until he uh, comes to a, an understanding of Buddhism and then his career really takes off. And the, the movie poster to promote the movie has the director sitting on the head of a Buddha, which, of course, is a very offensive image to uh, most Buddhists and to Thais in general. And, and this organization contacted uh, the film company responsible for making this uh, uh, movie, uh, and, and the Royal Thai Consulate actually officially protested and forced him to change his advertising images so that he didn't include that image anymore, saying that he was insulting the Thai nation. And in doing that, what, what is so interesting to me is that this is not a, just a case of the Thai government uh, exercising uh, suzerainty over treatment of Buddhas in its own country. It is, in fact, projecting its influence across national boundaries and saying doesn't matter whether you're in Germany, it doesn't matter whether you're in the United States, you still have to respect our protocols for displaying and, and treating the Buddha. And if you don't, 
we are going to interpret that as an, uh, a direct insult, a, a direct attempt to humiliate our values and, and, our, and our culture, and we're going to do what we can to hold you responsible for that. And that gives cultural capital back home for doing what a state should do? What it, it feels, or yeah, what it does essentially is it 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 reifies that that identity boundary between Thai and Farang, right? It it sort of generates increased hostility between the two groups by by allowing the Thai state to say or or use example after example to say, look at the way that they treat the things that are important to us. They don't have respect for us, um, and in many cases, the the Thai state will say this is an intentional insult right they're, they're intentionally doing this to to insult us and and so again it it makes the idea of thainess or the thai nation state look vulnerable which is in in many ways the intention it makes thai identity look vulnerable and it says this is why we have to keep it narrowly defined this is why the thai state has to have power to define these things and to protect that definition because if we don't it's going to constantly be under assault from outside uh, countries who will embarrass and humiliate us so it again it becomes the raison d'etre right for the thai state existence and that's so similar to what's going on now because we're in the middle of election season and you know things that are un-american right if you want to tie it into to people who are not as familiar with with Southeast Asian studies or Thai studies, the the threat of doing un-American things, right, and make America great again, and 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 it's a very it's not a narrative that's specific to Thailand or to to any nation, and you see that that this, we need vigilance to to protect who we are and to exactly maintain. exactly and and the image of kind of the freedom the American freedom fighter that goes above and beyond American borders to defend American values. Mm-hmm. And what what the the country sees as just and correct and moral, mm-hmm. right? So that borderless narrative is is being used by other country outside of Thailand as well, and and we see it on television all the time now with with the election coming up. Yeah, I, I'll go a step further. That I would oh, say that you'll meet my Amer- un-American. I will. And you'll I will raise, raise you. I will raise Wait, you. Wait, is a Trump endorsement coming? By, by identifying the Trump campaign as very skillfully integrating national humiliation discourse. The, the uh, most uh, visual symbol of his campaign is that red hat that says, make America great again, which of course is a historiographical argument that says America was great in the past, it is no longer great now, and then proceeds to identify the reasons that America is no longer great. The Chinese are, are kicking us around with a trade deficit. We have too many uh, immigrants. Uh, we can't keep our borders secure. All of these sort of imagined constructs that explain, uh, first of all, the, the decline of America, but then become the very reason for a Trump presidency, which, to my mind, looks like a much more authoritarian type executive. Not just your mind. <laughs> Europe <laughs> is on this. <laughs> to uh, a much more authoritarian type of executive leadership than we've seen in the past. And, and why is this necessary? And why might people be willing to accept this? Well, because he's been so successful at constructing this narrative that, you know, the United States has experienced this type of national humiliation. You've written about some other examples where 
this helps this paradigm helps us understand the way that states operate maybe in China. You, you want to talk about some of those examples? Yeah, there's a great uh, a wonderful book by a, a scholar named Zheng Wang who writes uh, about national humiliation in China. It's called Never Forget National Humiliation. And he is looking at the new generation of ultra-nationalist Chinese youth and trying to account for it. And what he, what he talks about is the importance of the Tiananmen Square incident, uh, some would say massacre, as a sort of rupture point in the history of the relationship between the Chinese state and the Chinese people. By, by the early 90s, after Tiananmen, the uh, People's Republic of China has abandoned socialism. That is not, their, that is not the rationale for their government anymore. And by, in 1989, they are slaughtering uh, pro-democracy student protesters. So it doesn't appear that they have the interests of the people of China uh, at, at heart anymore. So what is the rationale then for such an authoritarian, heavy-handed system of government? That's a question that the Chinese government has to answer, and they do it by using history education. They, they rewrite their history books to show that the history of China is not about the national myth, national myth of China inventing gunpowder and inventing paper and inventing all these wonderful things. It's a history of national humiliation. It's about uh, the uh, opium wars. It's counterintuitive, but it's kind of incredible. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's about the opium wars. It's about the a Boxer Rebellion and the Eight Nation Army. It's about the Japanese invasion uh, during uh, World War II. And it's about American attempts to sort of restrict and contain China during the Cold War era. And that in turn reshapes the history of uh, the way that uh, Chinese youth see their, not only their own history, but also the purpose of the state. Why do we need an authoritarian Chinese state? Because it is the one that can prevent us from being humiliated the way that the Japanese and the British and the French have humiliated in the past, right? Never forget national humiliation means we need to continue a, to support an authoritarian government, which may have its other failings, but there's no denying that since 1949, the world has shown m much more respect for China than it had previously. Celebrating its 30th anniversary, the Center for Burma Studies presents the Kaleidoscope of Burmese Art Exhibition Suite. The center has taken over campus with its seven different exhibitions. The NAU Art Museum is hosting four exhibits through November 18th, while the Jack Olson Gallery in the School of Art and Design is hosting two exhibits running through October 27th. Opening October 1st, the Southeast Asia Collection and Founders Memorial Library will host an exhibit featuring maps and manuscripts from the Burma Collection. The exhibits are free and open to all. For more information, visit niu.edu slash Burma. The reason that I became interested in the Franco-Thai border conflict was that I had these two strong interests. I had a background in Thai studies, uh, but my first love was really French history, and so I thought, well, how can I figure out a way to combine these right. two together? <laughs> and I hit on the, the Franco-Thai uh, border conflict. And... Uh, <laughs> During the, the, the research for that project, I um, 
recognize the amount of anti-colonial discourse. I, I read through reams and reams of anti-French colonial propaganda that are stored in the French Archives d'Outre-mer in, in uh, Aix-en-Provence. And I also read Siam Mapped. And when I read Siam Mapped, that uh, completely transformed my understanding, not only of, of Thai history, but of history in general. And I thought, if this is the type of history that, that can be written, then that's definitely something I'm, I'm interested in doing. Wow. And we have a special guest in our studio. <laughs> I don't um, know if I'm necessarily as special as Shane. But <laughs> it's not a competition. <laughs> so, so, so he gets interested in uh, um, Southeast Asia, which is something we're trying to get uh, the, the people we reach out to. How did, how did you get interested in Southeast Asia? Um, I guess for me, it started in high school. Um, I did college credit American history, and the big thing was we did we called it a unipack, but it was this overarching topic, and you wrote four sections. And it actually usually ended up to be about the length of a master's thesis after you got it all together. Um, and I chose chemical warfare during the Vietnam War. Um, and at the time, my mother was working at the VA clinic in my town. Um, and when she would talk to them about what was going on in her life and getting just talking with them, she brought up what I was doing. And so a section of it turned into this oral history project about of them telling me what their experience was like there. And so from there, it was sort of, I immediately fell in love with oral history topic. Um, but then from there, it was sort of, I wanted to know all I could about the American history, like American side of this Vietnam War. And then I did a semester abroad in Greece just because I wanted to do a semester abroad. And I came to Wayne the same year that Shane had started there. So he essentially took me under his wing. I was the only student there, I think, interested in anything to do with Asian history. <laughs> um so I did a couple of his classes. I did specifically his Vietnam War. Um, and at that point, it was, he taught it from a completely different perspective. He included sort of this Vietnamese perspective, the international perspective of it. And to see it from all these different sides, I was I was sold that there was, like, you couldn't just learn something from one perspective anymore. Um, and then I did my honors thesis with him um, on defoliation specifically during the war and doing all the research. And he, he specifically actually got books for me that I couldn't get from our library um, and with all these different sources I had Vietnamese sources then and I I was sold then I just I had to do it so it was the magic of interlibrary loan that really <laughs> really sealed the deal I is, think world cat is magic well they the book that I was specifically trying to get they wouldn't give to me and then he he was able to get it as faculty but it was this book that was just like actually falling apart it was so old but the way that Shane taught it was what was so great. I mean, he, I did History of India with him, World War II, a modern Southeast Asia, um, and Vietnam War specifically. But he always taught that he would teach one, one way, like one perspective one day, and then the other, and essentially blended them together. And I think what, that so many problems with other classes I had taken was you had this one perspective and it was just the perspective anybody, everyone wanted you to know, and it isn't necessarily the way that the world actually views it. Wow, that's a good that's a good endorsement. Yeah, I, I was once a very good history teacher. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it it uh, to be fair, it, it's easy to uh, to do a good job of teaching when you have excellent students who are who are interested in the topic that you're. That you're presenting. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So what I what I find really helpful is is 
like the conversation we just had in that it's not specific to that area, right? We're, we're treating the area studies as a case study into uncovering what it is that we do in humanities, which is understanding the human condition. Mm -hmm. So here's how yeah. this happens in that, this country, and it's not just in this country, and then we can expand that. But there are, of course, unique and interesting things that are happening in that country that's informed by its history and the circumstances um, that make it particularly interesting, but we can expand it. And mm -hmm. I think how Krista just described her experience is perfect, right? In that she was drawn in from maybe one perspective of it and then realized there's so much more and that actually has a bigger picture in, in our understanding of the humanities. Well, I mean, it can be, it can be a sp like your, your teaching approach to try to say like, well, there's, there's another side to sure. this and to, to, to kind of put off the, you know, let's leave to, you know, um, another another maybe the department of philosophy they can decide to make and make a moral judgment about whether this thing is right or wrong but yeah. there's there's another side to it and and for them it, it's it's as true as the the the, the vietnamese side to the conflict is is is, is <laughs> as at least as true as the as the as the american one mm -hmm. and that and that and for those who've done this a while that seems like an obvious thing to um but it, but it's 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 really revelatory for um, for students to who to sometimes to, to be exposed to that. Yeah, one of the one of the assignments that I've used in uh, the Southeast Asia course and in the India course, and Kristen knows this because I think you did this ass an assignment like this. But I send the students to the uh, Foreign Relations of the United States Archive, which is available uh, online. Yeah, we can put a link up there, listeners. Yeah. Very effective, and um, I assign them. Uh, a, uh, an archive to read through, and then I, I, I give them a, a research question that, and that, that I want them to answer by using the, these primary sources. Very, you know, it's not really revolutionary from that perspective, but the one thing that I want them to understand is that what a historian does is to take these ideas and construct narratives from it, right? To construct arguments. And in doing that, you have a, such a hard, hard time making decisions as to which voices to privilege and which voices to ignore. And they have a really difficult time uh, creating an, an, an argument and a narrative after that because there's so many different competing voices and there's so, so much information that seems to conflict with each other or even to supersede other information. And, and they, they come to me uh, sort of struggling as to uh, how to approach it. And what I really want them to understand and that's is the point. that's the point. That is the point of what the historian does. You it's are, not just a truth. It's exactly. which of these truths are we going to tell? It is not opening the box and finding the document that explains why the Vietnam War happened, <laughs> right? That's not, that's not the way it works. No, it is, it is constructing that meaning. You're, you're inventing that meaning in a lot of ways. Um, it's either well-argued or it's poorly argued but it's, it's an argument at the end of the day. And, and I think that's a revelation for them. And, and, and what I want them to then do is to approach secondary sources with a much more critical eye, saying... So saying, what's the right answer? Exa so like, exactly. well, no. <laughs> Somebody else did what you're doing now and came up with that meaning. It, it does, it's, not, it's not truthful. It wasn't eternal. They created it out of these materials. And you get to decide whether they were right or whether they were wrong. 
How was that assignment for you, Kristen? Um, I actually hated it, um, but it wasn't <laughs> because of the primary source material necessarily. Um, I was in the class that he first tried it on, and he had tried to do it where he would assign like each person in the class a portion of these. Oh, so it was a group work? Um, but And they were supposed to like summarize and be like, these are the, like, the characters in the, these sources. This is what happened. This is the year. And you had people that would... Like me actually did the assignment. You had people that didn't submit anything, <laughs> yeah. and then you had people that did, like wrote coming. like two lines, <laughs> and it just got very frustrating to be going through where, it, like these some of these are really short, like documents that didn't have a whole lot to like say to them. But then you had some that were pages long that you had to go through then and re go through because somebody didn't do it. <laughs> so I mean. It yeah. made me not trust this is a the lot other, of my classmates. <laughs> this is the other lesson that you learn when you're a, when you're a professor, right? Is that you you don't always get the assignment right the first time. <laughs> but but for me it was great. Um, I actually part of my master's thesis used uh, Office of the Historian documents, so I guess it was a good practice for me. <laughs> she wrote a great master's thesis here at uh, Northern Illinois. <laughs> So thanks for sending her to us. Indeed, yes. Okay, so uh, Shane, what's your favorite Southeast Asia dish? You know, I was just back in Bangkok over the summer, and uh, it had been a while, so I was getting reacquainted with all of the dishes that I used to eat when I when I lived in Thailand uh, in a previous era. And I really think that my favorite food to eat is Kalman Gai. I re- I really Tell us about Kalman Gai. Kalman Gai is uh, very simple. It's just um, boiled rice, essentially. And, uh, I'm judging him with my yeah, face. Yes, she is judging me. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> it's it's, it's a, a sort of a boiled rice and then a skinless chicken over top. And you can add you know whatever, whatever uh, pepper it is or, or sauce that you want. And I have to say, uh, largely because when I was uh, in Thailand as a missionary, it was, it was so hard for me to eat a lot of the different foods that um, you had to find things that, that were uh, less spicy and, and which therefore became comfort foods. Right. So at a time when I couldn't eat very many things, <laughs> Kalman Guy was always there for me. <laughs> so I will not forget you, Kalman Guy. You are still my favorite. Wow. I'll get you a t-shirt that says that. I will take it and wear it proudly. Thank you. Are you, are you how do you feel about Kalman Guy? Kalman Guy is fantastic. It's super difficult to make. I believe that. So when when she, it, sa- it sounds when it Shane sounds says, kind of basic. When Shane says simple, I cringe yeah. not, because it's not so elaborate. Hard to make. It's not an elaborate presentation. Right. It's not a complex dish um, in terms of flavor, but uh, it's very hard to make. And and I what I like about Thai cuisine is that we take all of these things that are not necessarily originally Thai and Thaiify it. Mm-hmm. And then we get things like kaman kai. And pad thai. And pad thai. That's that's, right. Actually, we, we're going to have a pad thai podcast. We should. Mm-hmm. That's just later. Talking pad thai. Would be <laughs> 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 My ancestors would be so proud. You could probably have a whole standalone podcast that's like talking pad thai. <laughs> and, and just. I want to be a guest on that podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can have a, so why don't you, uh, it's time for plugs. Why don't you give us some uh, some recommendations? Well, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'm an assistant professor of history at Kent State University, which, uh, although it does not have 
a strong Asian studies program at the moment, something that we're working to rectify. It does have a, a, a very interesting uh, visitor center that I think some of your listeners might be, might be interested in, which is our May 4th Center, which documents the history of the, as we call it at Kent State, the May 4th event, although most people would refer to it as the Kent State shootings. And when you visit the May 4th Center, you get a, a sort of walking tour of some of the events that were going on, some of the cultural forces that were going on in the, in the uh, late 1960s. Um, you get a, a brief history of the, um, the uh, Nixon decision to bomb Cambodia, which triggered the protests nationwide that led to the uh, event at Kent State. So there's some good Southeast Asia content. Some in very the, good the, Southeast the, Asia yeah. content as it played out here in the American Midwest. And there's also a, a very good documentary film about what actually happened uh, in the confrontation between the, the students and the National Guard. And um, we have uh, an excellent curator of that uh, uh, center named Mindy Farmer, who'd be happy to, to help uh, uh, any of your listeners who, who care to visit. And uh, it really uh, is focused on uh, preserving the memory of those students, but also of um, keeping alive the, the uh, memory of the event and interpreting the meaning of, of May 4th. You know, a lot of it, it may be surprising for people who know about Southeast Asia, but most freshmen who come to Kent State aren't aren't interested in those events, and and a lot of them don't even know about what happened at Kent in in 1970. So, these are uh, in, it was an important moment for the the anti-war movement, but also for the the history of democracy in the United States, and they do an excellent job of uh, of interpreting that. Where can we find your book? The book uh, is available uh, entitled The Lost Territories, Thailand's History of National Humiliation. It's available at the website for the University of Hawaii Press. It's also available at Amazon.com and uh, from my most recent check of the internet at dozens of fine internet retailers who are also nice. carrying it. So you can, you can order it at a variety of venues. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. I've, uh, it's, it's always uh, great to come to Northern Illinois University and be part of one of the great centers of Southeast Asian studies in the United States. So thank you for inviting me. I hope to uh, be able to come back sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>